You cannot serve God and wealth. Amen. Who owns you? Who owns you? When I was 19 and a new college student in Knoxville, Tennessee, at one point I believe I had around 17 aggressively political bumper stickers on my rather large, gas-guzzling, two-tone blue Bronco SUV. That is, until one day I woke to find four strategically placed nails one right in the center of each tire. So, after buying four new tires, which took approximately 75% of my month's income, I removed all but one bumper sticker. The one I could not bear to remove read simply, Who Owns You? It was to the far right on the back of my SUV and was rather tattered as it had been one of the first I had placed on my vehicle when I got it in high school. In my deliberate discernment about which sticker would remain, I had unexpectedly uncovered a central tenet to my life's core mission. Who owns me? This question I found was central to my very being, to my very identity, and this question, who owned you, I found was far more central to uncovering joy than the more often asked question of what do you own. This question of who owns you is what Jesus is asking his disciples in our gospel parable today, and it is then what we are called to ask of one another in our reading of it. And yes, Jesus presents this question in a calculating and rather scandalous way. Is Jesus suggesting that we steal? Is Jesus really lifting up the deceitful ways of this shrewd manager? I'll be honest with you that after much reflection and study, even after my time with Bible study on Wednesday, I put down the scripture with even more questions than answers. And I think that is as it is supposed to be with scripture. Answers really are suspect, but questions have integrity. And so as I ponder what Jesus means in this parable, even as I consider the economic structure and context that Jesus is speaking into and from, the question that remains with me is, who owns you? You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble, you might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Anyone want to risk a guess at who wrote these lyrics? Everybody! 
didn't even have to say anyone twice. Yes. These lyrics come from the born-again years of Yes, Bob Dylan. Nobody likes to talk about those years very much. Nobody, including Bob Dylan. But he wrote them, and the song Gotta Serve Somebody, which was recorded in Muscle Shoals Sound Studio, did win a Grammy, has been played in at least one movie and one episode of The Sopranos, and the song still gets significant play even these days. The born-again years for the Jewish hippie pop culture legend Bob Dylan were short, but long enough to record some of the most iconic pop gospel of all time. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Truth, Bob. Truth. <laughs> In this world, the question isn't, will we serve somebody? The question, and therefore the decision that we all must make, is who exactly will we serve? Like Bob, Jesus is asking his disciples and the gathered crowds during this passage of Luke's gospel, who exactly owns you? Because who owns us is who we will serve. And in this world, so many entities are vying to own us, meaning to have our loyalty, to be our central identity, to give us our value as humans, and thus to define us and make us servants to them. We all come into the world placed in certain social locations with cultural identities passed down from generations. We are given cultural norms and expectations before we can even talk. It is these cultural norms and expectations and our social location that often dictate for us who owns us and thus who we will serve. And as a church, our response to Jesus' question of who owns you, our response to the question, who will you serve, God or wealth, is found in one central covenant, and that is our baptismal covenant. This is why I think we as a church are very attached to baptizing our people young, infants. This is why we pour water over their heads and mark them as Christ's own forever. Because wisely, we know, if we don't claim them now, the world will. And rather than allow the world to tell them who they will serve, we have, perhaps unconsciously, but nonetheless, very wisely decided to do it first. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Do you believe in God, the Holy Spirit? These are the words we say that we proclaim together, the words in which we state who we will serve with God's help. We say them because it does not go without being said. Without being said, we are left to the world's whims. Without being said, the world will surely fill in the blanks and will tell us exactly who owns us and who we should serve. Without this being said, that we will serve God. Even the church can forget who it is we are called to serve. Before Constantine, around 300 AD, roughly, Bob Dylan, just kidding. <laughs> the church, Jesus' followers, 
saw themselves as set apart from the world around them, set apart from Rome, from the empire, and all that the empire found valuable. In the part of the passage just following the one we read today from Luke, but which the lectionary skips right over, it says, The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable to God. The early Jesus followers knew, they knew that if they were to follow Jesus, they could not allow what the empire valued to be what they valued. They knew they had to be set apart. But after Rome declared Christianity to be the state religion, the religion of the empire, the lines in the sand, the boundaries between the earthly world and Jesus' followers grew thin and vague. And before you knew it, to be a good Christian was the same thing as to be a good Roman. In this blurred boundary of what it meant to follow Jesus or follow the empire, Christianity suffered its first identity crisis. I'm not sure we have recovered from that crisis in the last 1,500 years. I think this identity crisis continues and the consequences of that decision haunt us still. But here... In this baptismal covenant, we as a community say something radically different. We declare another message. We answer Jesus' riddle, who can serve wealth and God? We have before us the answer to who owns us. What we know from our parable today is that the shrewd manager had a change of heart. And he realized If he was to have a home after he was released by his master, he must turn his accountability from the master and the money to the relationships with the people he was doing business with. The manager says in the parable, I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes And the manager goes to the people and makes amends with their debt so that they can pay what they are able and be released so that their service can be turned back to neighbor and self. The manager becomes accountable to relationships. What we claim in our baptismal covenant is that we also will turn to God and to relationship. We are asked to turn to service to God and to neighbor with God's help. This is the love of God in action, to be in relationship. And to be love in action is our baptismal covenant. It is no longer a sentiment. This kind of love in our covenant takes on flesh. Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? I will with God's help. Will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? I will with God's help. Tenderness is what love looks like in private. 
Justice is what love looks like in public. Cornell West. Jesus is teaching how to love, how to live a life where we serve a God of love by living a life of seeking justice for all. Nelson Mandela was born over a hundred years ago, and it is written in the biography of the spiritual and political warrior called Mandela's Way. Nelson Mandela never owned a smartphone and never wrote a word on a laptop, and yet he authored the most famous tweet of all time. It is true. This tweet was delivered following the violence in Charlottesville, Virginia in August of 2017, four years after Mandela had died. It read, No one is born hating another person because of the color of their skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. That tweet was tweeted, and yes, that is a word, by the then President Barack Obama, and it was liked more than seven and a half million times. Indeed, love comes more naturally to the human heart than does its opposite. But what comes naturally to the human heart is not always what the earthly world will ask of us. It is not always what the world will ask of us because love will not direct us ever to serve wealth. Love will never let our human hearts be owned by anything of this world. Love will seek always to serve what the heart loves. Love will seek always relationships rooted in justice. And so we come together today with our sisters Michelle and Kate and their beautiful baby Hudson, and we will together teach him that he is called to serve love. The lesson to love must be taught with a collective voice. Parents cannot do this work alone. I suspect that may be another reason we baptize babies more for the collective voice of community to have the backs of parents in an effort to drown out the voice of the world and to proclaim as loudly as possible that we, we will not serve empire, that our identity is one rooted in service to our neighbor and our God. And we proclaim this today to remind ourselves who owns us. It is not the world who owns us and thus dictates our decisions and makes us slave to an earthly master. It is not our clocks. It is not our schedules. It is not our cell phones who own us. And it is certainly not, as the gospel states today, wealth that owns us. And thus, it is not any of those things that we as Christians are called to serve. Our call is here in these profound words, we are about to remind ourselves of and to teach to Hudson. It is here in this covenant we will make with Kate and Michelle that we will uphold Hudson within this deep knowing to help him always remember who he is called to serve, who we are called to serve with him, with God's help. And we will need God's help to do this work of love 
To be accountable to our service to neighbor and to God, we will need the help of God and our neighbor because to make a covenant is not enough. To teach love is not enough. We must be willing, as the manager is in this parable today, to look at our accounts and to ask who owns us. In order to be held accountable, we must be willing to be transparent about our accounts. Yes, our bank accounts, but also our accounts of the economy of relationship. This is the work we are doing together at All Souls, this being transparent about who owns us and who we will serve. To be transparent about our accounts and our investments, to ask these difficult questions of each other will bring with it tension and perhaps even division. Jesus warns us of that in Scripture. We should not be surprised. But by the grace of God, we have been given a great tool for our individual and collective accountability here in the baptism we claim in being marked as Christ's own forever. The question of who owns us is answered in our relationships with each other and with God's help, we will find the courage to love what God loves and to follow the way of Jesus. Let us pray. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure. Amen.